Hello, this is Wine Blast. I'm Susie, he's Peter, and you are most welcome. For this episode, our glasses are well and truly brimful because we mm. are diving into English sparkling wine, a favourite topic of ours, uh, mm. but this time with a very specific and delicious angle. Yes, indeed. Hello. Uh, we like to think we do good angles. Here on Wine Blast, good angles. Uh, it's all about the geometry for us, isn't it? You know, knowing your isosceles from your ice wine. There we go. Uh, but our angle here is we all know English fizz can be world class. Um, but the question now is should we be aging it? You know, more so than we do now. If so, why and how could this be the key to unlocking? even greater things from these already exciting wines. And is now the time to be buying and laying this stuff down before everyone else does. Uh, So here are a couple of quotes to give you a taster of what's to come. Today, champagne may not have that capacity of ageing so well. And here in England, we have that vibrancy and uh, gives effectively the potential to age better. We all have very high ambitions within English sparkling wine for what's possible with with English sparkling wine. But I think to really become, you know, a serious like name, ten best wine regions in the world or five best or whatever, if, you know, for for England to have a chance in there, we have to be producing age-worthy bottles that are sitting in people's cellars that they pull out for special dinners and things like that. Fighting talk there from Corrine Seeley of Exton Park and Night Timbers Brad Greatrix. Now we'll be hearing more from them in due course as we explore what makes for an age-worthy sparkling wine and why English fizz is particularly suitable for maturing. Mm. We'll also be busting a few common myths about ageing fizz along the way, won't we? Wonderful stuff. Now just before we do get started on that though, we, we've had a lovely message in from Pat in upstate New York who said the following. Hi, Susie and Peter. I just finished listening to your podcast on the six best wine books, and I'm pleased to say I own three of them. I uh, looked up my Kermit Lynch Adventures of the Wine Route, and I had one post-it, and lo and behold, I had highlighted the quote about Beaujolais being the one-night stand of wine. thought you'd get a kick out of that. I thought it was very funny. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Pat. Uh, That did make us chuckle. Um, We've actually had lots of feedback about that particular episode. Do check it out if you haven't already. It'll give you the context about this Beaujolais mention, if nothing else. You need that. (laughs) (laughs) And there have been lots of opinions flying around about our audacious attempt to narrow it down to just six books. Mm. Um, Lots of you writing in about your favourites. So thank you for all Mm. of that. Mm. Uh, Very interesting and entertaining. Yeah, indeed. Uh, And on a more general note, you know, thanks to all of you who've been in touch lately uh, on all kinds of subjects and for all kinds of reasons we do love to hear from you uh, even if we can't always feature everything on the show Uh, on which note we should get back to this show Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is your subject really isn't it something you've kind of taken an increasing interest in yeah yeah so I've been I mean I've been tasting and writing about English wine for quite a long time now but Mm. this is still a young wine producing scene so I guess Mm. the temptation is always to write about the new exciting shiny things and and what's coming up Mm. but I started more and more to notice how beautifully some of the top English sparkling wines were ageing and that got me thinking. Was it, wasn't this sort of something you picked up as part of um, chairing the Wine GB Awards? Yeah, that, that. that was that was certainly part of it, yes. Mm. yeah. So the Wine GB Awards are, are an annual competition that I chair where we have well over 300 of some of the best wines in the UK, both sparkling 
and still, Mm -hmm. and we taste them all blind and give awards to the top ones. Uh, It's a very rigorous process. We have highly experienced judges. The wines are really scrutinised, so the top awards are very hard earned. Mm -hmm. And I noticed a common theme among our supreme champion wines, which is the overall winner in the competition every year. Yeah, and what was that? In a word, age. So, over the last six years, all the YNGB Award Supreme Champions have been sparkling, Mm. and all except one have been six years or older when they won won the competition. Interesting. And Mm. if you think, you know, the wines have to be commercially available and in decent quantities to enter the competition, which effectively excludes the very oldest wines anyway. So this is quite telling. And, and, and what kind of wines are we talking about here? Just um, so, you know, well, I mean, got an idea. We started things like Coates and Sealy Blanc de Blanc La Perfide mm. 2009, that one in 2017, so eight years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had things like Wiston Blanc de Noir and, and Blanc de Blanc. We've had Hattingley Valley's King's Cuvée, Artelian Blanc de Blanc. And then in 2023, it was Digby Fine English 2013. So a wine that was 10 years old. Mm. So so what you're saying is English fizz gets better with age. So that's what we should be looking out for and, and buying, you know, older or, or mature bottles or, or I guess choosing the right ones to lay down ourselves to enjoy later. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, for a while I've been telling people who've, who've asked me what wines to buy for big birthdays or, or for godchildren mm. or whatever mm. to forget vintage port and go for vintage English fizz, mm. you know, mm. We've done the same. I mean, let's face it, we've done the same ourselves. Mm, we've yeah. put our money where our mouths are. You know, as you know all too well, having tried to sort out our wine cellar this weekend. That is very true. Yeah, it's very true. I think my back's still in bits. <laughs> I'm quite sure how I'm sitting here in one piece. I'm actually doing some sort of tantric yoga pose <laughs> under the desk, which you can't oh, see. Oh, if only. It's definitely one of the downsides of being a sparkly wine lover. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, it's There's heavy all going. The humping and dumping. It's of, it's definitely really heavy going. Um, <laughs> but it's worth it. Yeah, well, it is, it is. And, and I was, but so. Anyway, back to the ageing. While while it's, I would say, fairly normal to talk about ageing vintage champagne, mm. English fizz just hasn't had the track record to judge adequately before now. Um, mm. I mean, I there have been some pioneering bottles, let's be fair. The, the 1992 Night Timber Blanc de Blanc being the most obvious case in point, mm. arguably the wine that launched the whole English fizz movement. That was one we, we, we tasted not too long ago, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And it was, if I remember rightly, it was still absolutely delicious, wasn't it's it? It's definitely stood the test of time. You know, it's mm. nutty, it's honeyed, you've got some roasted peach with a hint of leather and then mushroomy, mm. you know, it's really complex but fine, elegant and Quite profound. That's, I mean, the, that's the 1992. 92, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 92. yeah. I mean, it's, it's not the best aged English fizz out there, mm. but I would say as first attempts go, and that was the first vintage at Night Timber, mm. it's kind of proof of the, the idea, you know, not just that England can make great traditional method fizz from champagne varieties, but also now that it can age and mature mm. and mm. improve too. And I suppose subsequent wines, you know, maybe with a bit more experience and, and an expertise have then being further proof of, of concept of, yeah, of, the, of, exactly. this, of this fact that it can... Exactly. But, but you need time, don't you? You need time to make a considered judgment on this. And I think we've only just reached the time where that's possible. Mm. Anyway, so I wanted to look into this. Uh, and so I organised, as you know, uh, Mr Humper Dumper, mm. um, a huge and absolutely 
fascinating tasting of, of older English fizz. It was amazing. Um, I spoke to lots of winemakers and I wrote a piece for Decanter magazine. Uh, on, on which you've had some very complimentary feedback. I know. Um, I, know. <laughs> I, I have to mention this. You know, the, the great Australian sparkling winemaker, Andrew Pirry, he kindly got in touch to say much how much he'd enjoyed the article. Fan I couldn't mail. believe it. Fan that was mail. serious fan mail. Serious. Uh, as did yeah. Jerome Moisen, who 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 and he, he Jerome actually recommended the boys Hall restaurant in Kent, which apparently Boys still Hall. has mm. some of the Night Timber Blanc de Blanc 1992 on the list. I, th- I thought we were going to keep that to ourselves. <laughs> no, you kind of said it now. I thought we were going to sneak Sorry. down there and drink as many bottles as we as we, as we could before you know before they sold out. But now, now you're going to are... tell everyone. Oh come on, we're all about sharing the love on this pod. <laughs> anyway, anyway, That's... I thought it would be good to to, to chat about this topic. Here mm. on the pod, yep. so we did some recording, did mm. some more tasting, and yeah. here we are. Yeah, all right. So, 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 where are we going to start? How should we start? Well, this? I think I've, maybe we should preface this all by saying that aging wine isn't for everyone. Mature wines mm. can be an acquired taste, but we absolutely adore, don't we? What happens to mm. good traditional method sparkling wine when it ages, especially the English stuff? It sort of, oh, it just goes all nutty and, and savoury and, and the fizz softens. Yeah, and, it can, oh. I mean, it can just be transformed into something magical, can't mm. it? And something, can. Yeah, I think something that goes beyond freshness and fun and into the realms of evocative, autumnal, you know, complex, really magical. And the more you start to get a taste for it, like many things, the more complex Compelling it becomes, mm. and the more bank breaking. Let's <laughs> gloss over that. Uh, how are we going to go about tackling this particular subject, Mrs. Uh, expensive fears, <laughs> expensive mature fears? Well, I thought we'd um, we'd sort of build up to some top tips. You know, mm. okay. things like yep. um, I'm a little taster. You know, buy magnums, um, not bottles. Chardonnay Always. works best. Um, mm. Choose your vintage with care, mm-hmm. and storage is key. But before we come on to those, I think it'd be good to go into a bit of detail on what makes for an age-worthy English sparkling wine and why. So we've got the basics kind of okay. covered Sounds first. good. Sounds good. Um, and you mentioned busting some myths earlier mm-hmm. on too. Is is that where this kind of thing comes in? It can actually, Do, yeah. do you like to yeah, bust yeah. a myth or let's two bust a myth along or two. the way let's, if we can? Let's do some busting. <laughs> um, so, fair enough, we could start logically in the vineyard and say, in wine, one of the accepted truths is that low yields give you more intense and therefore more age-worthy wines, right? Right. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. So you set me up. At least the fizz. Up. I did say oh, okay. that. All right. So you're making, so, so right. Uh, making a specific fizz point here. Okay. And it's partly to do with the quantity of polyphenols or polyphenols, those antioxidants most common in grape skins and pips, of which tannins are an example, that you end up with in the juice and wine and which can be prone to oxidation. Mm. So here's Nightimber's head winemaker, Sherry Spriggs. Low low yields aren't necessarily your friend in sparkling wine. And this is something that the wine industry doesn't necessarily understand because it is not the case for still wine. And it's very true that with lower yields, you can get a concentration of flavor and you can get a really high amount of extract, etc., etc. That isn't always your friend in sparkling wine. And we've had enough. Yes, our yields are generally lower than champagne, but we've had some years with really low yields where you can kind of push that to the extreme and see and and see i think something we don't talk a lot about in wine 
because it's hard to and is an important point in aging of sparkling wine is the polyphenolic load. And the lower the yield, the higher the polyphenolic load. And when you've got a really high polyphenolic load, I feel like those wines have a harder time aging for as long. I feel like those components have um, more susceptibility to oxidation over time, and therefore they just make the wine age a little bit quicker. Texturally, there's also the where you feel that in your mouth aligns with where um, aldehyde is. And so you can pick up this dryness on the palate that's a kind of a, it's again, too much of something. Mm. Too much polyphenolic and aldehyde components together creates a sort of a dried out sensation on the palate that means the wine doesn't, have the same ability to age so elegantly. So to make an age-worthy sparkling wine, you're not actually looking for super low yields. Mm. There is a sweet spot. Mm. Not so high that you're going to get dilution. That very rarely happens in the UK, I have to say. (laughs) But equally not so low that you get too much polyphenol content, which can then make the wine prone to oxidation and give it a harsh kind of drying palate feel. Mm, Interesting, interesting. But, you know... um, um England is known for its lower yields than champagne, isn't it? Mm. Because, well, whatever, Mother Nature's yeah. maybe a bit harsher yeah, 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 here. Yeah. But which, you... which means you need to choose your vintage and mm, your producer okay. and wine with care. Yeah. You know, obviously, with high yields, you still need to get the right conditions to ripen the grapes properly. Mm. But Sherry mentioned 2010 as a really good, good age-worthy vintage for Night Timber, perhaps mm. one of their best, a pretty high-yielding year, but it gave wines with balance. Mm. Okay, so you've mentioned balance there, and I know this was one of the big things that Sherry and Brad, uh, Brad, who we heard from at the start, uh, talked about. Um, just a bit of context, actually, at this point, just to be clear, we sat down with both Sherry and Brad together, their husband and wife, as well as heading up the viticulture and winemaking at Nine Timber. And just to finish off the context, it was a day full of bird song. <laughs> so you hear that? And also, I was tapping away, making notes on my laptop at the same time. So that just explains the sound context as well. There, we yeah. got a picture there now of what was happening. It does. It does. It was all anyway, happening. but they to come yeah. back. They were talking about balance they were yeah. everything was balanced having a balanced wine is the key for aging as far as sherry and brad are concerned mm. they say you know you can't really isolate just one thing it's the overall balance that will dictate a wine's age worthiness mm. so mm. take acidity for example there's mm. an assumption a myth perhaps that high acid wines or vintages will age best mm. but sherry and brad challenged that, saying that while acidity is one prerequisite for ageing, mm. and England is good because its coolish climate gives naturally high acid levels, it's far from the whole picture. And if a wine is too acid, it may mean it's not properly ripe, so not ultimately the most mm. balanced, and mm. that can make it age poorly. Did, didn't you talk to um, Clément Pirlo about this too? Yeah, yeah. So so Clément Pirlot is cellar master or head winemaker for Champagne, Champagne House Pommery, which is also making wines in Hampshire. Mm. He said, if a wine's too acid, it will stay too acid. So I guess what we're driving at is it's the winemaker's job to ensure balance in any given wine to suit its purpose. And if that purpose is, is sort of being the best it possibly can and, and ageing well, yeah, okay. what, what are the key factors there? Okay, yeah. So a couple of things to mention here. One is malolactic fermentation or MLF. You mm. know, that's the natural process whereby the malic acid in wine is converted to lactic acid 
by bacteria. Mm. Now, this is a normal part of fermentation and it tends to lower the overall impression of acidity in the wine and make it rounder. Mm. Now, normally in a high acid region like the UK, winemakers would do full MLF, but some English fizz producers choose to block it, to retain vibrancy in the wines and ensure ageability. But some people don't do that. Yeah. They- yeah, yeah, no, some people don't. This is an interesting one. The debate, debate is is still being played out in the wines. Mm. So Sherry and Brad, also Clément, do full MLF. Clément says he can't understand why people wouldn't do it in the UK, given we have more than enough natural acidity. Mm. And Brad and Sherry point out that you need to filter more and add more sulphur to a wine to prevent it doing MLF in bottle. But that can have an effect of muting a wine's character and evolution over time. But some people do block malolactic fermentation. Yeah, yeah. So I also talked to Corinne Seeley at Exton Park, and this is what she said. I prefer not to use malolactic when I uh, think of vintages, English vintages, because I don't want to lose that vibrancy, that perception of... uh, of life in the wine and uh, I like that yes that perception of bubbles and so this is also for me important to be very careful with the use of the mallow because it can hide some good elements into the wine. Yeah I I remember Emma Rice uh, formerly of Attingley Valley of course um, talking about that that natural vibrancy as the stiff upper lip character of English wine, which which is a lovely way of putting it. Um, and, and this is a really interesting debate, isn't it? Because because I guess one of our all-time favourite English sparkling wines, which we're going to come on to in a bit, is the Night in Blanc de Blanc 2007, which had no malolactic fermentation. It had its malolactic blocked, but which has aged superbly. I think so. It- I, yeah. Where's the truth? In this? <laughs> I think maybe Where it's horses for courses. I really do. Mm. You know, it's not a definitive one way or the other. You can block MLF or do full MLF or just a percentage of MLF, and depending on the wine, the grapes, etc., it can either work or not. You mm. know, but it will give you different styles. You know, we love that Night Timber 2007 for its vibrancy and steel and beautiful, toasty, waxy complexity. But it is 15 years old now. Yeah, so a bit of age probably was 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 important there. But yeah. another thing that people always talk about is Lee's aging versus cork aging. Um, I'm going to ask you this question, but just to recap first, the Lee's aging is that key moment in the making of traditional method fizz when the wine has done its second fermentation in the bottle to get the fizz, the sparkle, uh, and then it sits marinating with the dead yeast lees, which sort of impart flavour and texture and complexity. Um, when the winemaker decides to disgorge the wine, take out the lees and put on the final cork, that's another key moment in a sparkling wine's life because it then sets off its future ageing trajectory as a finalised, finished wine under cork and it ages differently from that point on. So over to you, Lee's ageing, cork ageing. Well, again, again, there's an assumption in wine circles that the longer on the Lee's, the better, but that's not always the case. Now, here's what Sherry had to say about that. I think sometimes there's a lack of understanding of what yeast bring versus oxidation. I think sometimes when people are tasting an old wine, because anyway, an old wine is going to have characters that come as a result of the 
oxidation of wine over a period of time that they think that's the lees, but it's not. It's, it's oxidation. I think the thing that's underappreciated about what yeast brings to sparkling wine in the lees aging process is textural. I think it's, I think, and it's true that yeast bring flavors. So they'll, they'll bring the elements that will ultimately give you vanilla and um, baked pastry and freshly baked bread. That is coming from yeast. There, the, I don't dispute that at all. But I think sometimes the almost more important component is what it, what it brings to the body and the texture of the palate. Whereas I think oxygen is more heavily weighted to uh, flavor change in the fruit, predominantly the fruit characteristics, not exclusively to to taking a wine to having more of those. I'm going to call them generally the more caramelized flavors, and I think that's coming more from oxygen. Nothing in wine is black and white. There's always a bit of a cross and a mismatch there, but in the general sense, that's what I think. That's really interesting. You know, so she's drawing a distinction between the texture or body that, that the lees aging primarily gives and then the flavours of gradual oxidation which happen over time to the to the finished bottled wine under cork. Yeah, yeah. I mean I mean she describes the latter as more caramel or brown sugar in style and which is of course not u- unique to a site or terroir but is generic. Mm. Um, but the most important important point is lees aging is generally good because it gives complexity but there is such a thing as too much lees aging Mm. as sherry said to us it can make a wine chewy and unbalanced so the important thing is to tailor the length of lees aging to suit the wine and the long-term aging potential will be dictated by the overall end result not just the lees aging itself Okay, so so we're back to balance again. We are, we are, mm. and and just one other other perhaps more more geeky point about oxidation. One of the the key things in relation to aging potential is basic mechanics. You know, Clément Pierlot said the real keys were things like getting the sulfur dioxide levels right in the wine, getting good corks, and also managing that little bit of air left at the top of the bottle between the cork and the liquid. Because some people now, when they disgorge, are jetting nitrogen into that headspace before the final cork is put on, and that's making a big, big difference. You're right. This is this is quite geeky. <laughs> it is geeky. Um, jetting geeky. nitrogen where sort of normal air would have been. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's geeky, but it's important. Um, so when we were with Brad and Sherry, they made us, didn't they? Made us taste mm. the same wine, one normal and one whose headspace had been jetted with nitrogen, as we've just talked about. And the difference was really clear, wasn't it? It was, wasn't it? And this was this was um, one of their sparkling wines, wasn't it? I think yeah. the 2009 classic Cuvée, actually. The difference was really obvious, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, very obvious. Uh, really very obvious. fascinating. First time we've done that tasting, actually. So the, the jetted or sparged one, for me, had had just more aromatics. It had more more life, more, more energy, didn't it? It was... It, really it, different. It, it was young, It sort of seemed younger. I, don't, mm. I mean, was what but I, still I would say. Still very expressive. Yeah. It was funny. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, and and that's that. You know, night timber 
like it, you know, mm. to, to give more control and ageability to the wines. So retaining the Lees or Tolis's flavours, but slowing down the oxidative process is what it does. And I guess that's does. very producer specific. So another reason to choose your producer yeah. care. Um, so to finish up on winemaking, what about things like dosage? So with dosage, uh, adding sugar to the final wine, it does give extra protection against oxidation over time. Mm. Um and it can change the way the flavours develop in the bottle too. Mm. Um, so rather than any one level being good, it's all about making the wine balanced and fit for purpose, hitting that sweet spot. And um, I think that mm. the conclusion seems to be some is better than none and too much is always too much. Um, but it's more about style, I think, than ageing potential per se. It, you know, it, it's not the key to ageing. And, and so balance is everything again. Yeah. Yeah, okay. so so to come back to that, mm. uh, yeah. No, I, I, I asked Sherry what her top criteria are for an English fizz that will age. And guess what her number one was? I, the esoteric balance is a number one. I, it sound, I know that sounds not very specific, but it's just, it's so, 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 so important. It's so important that the balance of the flavor, the phenolics, the acidity, uh, the amount of residual sugar is all in a nice balance point. If you start off unbalanced, it's going to be really hard <laughs> to, 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 to really go the long haul. So that's definitely number one. Okay, so it's not just about the dosage, the, the lees or tolysis, the malolactic fermentation, the yields. It's all about the balance, as my high-wire teacher always used to say. <laughs> anyway, uh, coming up, base, we <laughs> hear more from Brad. Sherry and Corrine and Susie gives us her top tips for ageing English sparkly wine and we get to try and recommend some of the delicious results. By way of brief recap, top English sparkling wine clearly benefits from age, but you don't necessarily need low yields or screamingly high acidity or long lees ageing or a particular dosage. What you need is a careful winemaker who respects the fruit and aims for balance. That's and patience. Yeah, and that's the hard part. Um, <laughs> but it brings me neatly onto my top tips for how to get maximum pleasure from aged mm. English fizz. Yeah. And the number one is buy magnums, not bottles. Well, you, you would say that, wouldn't you? I'm a magnum kind of girl. <laughs> Ice creams or wine? No, I mean, that, that, that may sound clip. Uh, and I'm aware not every wine is made in magnums and they don't suit every person or occasion. Mm. But my point is, if you want the best flavour experience from aged English sparkling wines, magnums are undoubtedly the way to go. Mm. Uh, you know, we've tested this theory out many times, um, but we did it again with, with Brad and Sherry. They showed us the same wine, 2013 Blanc de Blanc, out of both bottle and magnum. And yeah, night and day, night and night day, and day. Yeah. same wine, totally exactly the same wine, but an astonishing difference. Um, the Magnum was just way more expressive and, and complex. You know, I reread my tasting note from that, and it just said, Give me the mags. <laughs> Give me the mags. I think, I think I was enjoying myself. <laughs> that might be thing. your tasting note. Let's see what <laughs> Sherry had to say about Magnums versus bottles. What the real benefit of a Magnum is, is the ability to overall end up with a greater complexity than the bottle so freshness is part of that because if it matures in the oxidative sense too quickly then you can never see all those beautiful characters that's part of it but the the real 
um, prize at the end of a magnum is that you get a heck of a lot more complexity when it reaches its peak than you can with a bottle. So, so yeah. to, to, if, if we were talking about ageability, your experience of magnums um, generally, um, you know, taking this into account, but overall, yes. would you say that they are definitely the way forward if you want to buy English wine and cellar it and keep it and let it age or buy older English wine? If you're looking for the epitome of English wine, yes. If yeah. you're looking for the best that England can do, yes. Because it will age for longer. And most importantly, the prize is you get the greater complexity at the end. The epitome of English wine. There we go. Mm. Uh, a magnum of properly aged, beautiful English fizz. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm signed up. I'm signed up. Yeah, and certainly the, the tasting backed this up, um, mm. as have other tastings before. Yeah, it yeah. just seems that the magnum size and format works really well for traditional mm. method sparkling wine. Um, it's something to do with the ratio of lees to wine in the magnum during autolysis. Um, also, there's less air in the headspace compared to the overall volume of liquid in the bottle. Mm. You know, and in terms of tasting and quality, there's no question, magnums are best. Okay, so, so you've blown the budget already with your first tip. Thank you. Uh, what's next? <laughs> you're going to like this one. You're <laughs> going to like it. Not a lot, but you're going to like it. Um, Chardonnay. Chardonnay is best. Um, mm. So when it comes to English sparkling wine, it does seem that Chardonnay is the most age-worthy grape variety for fizz. Mm. Um, the best Blanc de Blanc, so pure Chardonnay, just have this line of acidity and tension and vibrancy that enable it to age and develop complexity in a beautiful way. So I asked Sherry if grape variety mattered when it comes to ageing. In my view, yes. Um, we had a wine, uh, not made by us, um, lovely wine in its youth, made um, in 2003 from 100% Pinot Meunier, but it doesn't stand the, tw- the the test of time. Whereas we have Blanc de Blanc made 100% from Chardonnay. Well, our 92 it still exists and is still, of course, an old wine now, but is still in drinkable condition and tastes lovely. So, so the, those are the sort of the extremes. You have Pinot Meunier, which d- doesn't age at, on its own yeah. as 100% wine. It doesn't age for as long as a Chardonnay can. And then you have Pinot Noir somewhere in the middle where it does more than um, Pinot Meunier, uh, but less than Chardonnay on its own. So 100%. In in each of these cases here, I'm talking about a blend if it was 100% from that grape variety. Um, I'm not of the belief that Pinot Meunier in a blend will make the wine not age. Um, I, I don't believe that at all. But when it's 100% of Pinot Meunier or 100% of Pinot Noir or 100% of Chardonnay, without a doubt, the variety of Chardonnay will age longer. And do you think in a, in a blend where you've got all three, say, would is it more likely to show some better ageing potential if it's a Chardonnay-dominant blend? Not necessarily, but I'd say Chardonnay, um, it needs enough Chardonnay yes. in it if you want that overall blend of the three grape varieties to be to, to, to age for a long period of time. Yes. My gut says, uh, look, I don't think we've sort of run any experiments, but my gut says you want 30 to 35% Chardonnay to be in the game for long aging. 
Okay, so as confirmed Chardonnay tarts ourselves, we're loving that tip. I think it might be controversial elsewhere, but, you know, let's go with that. It's yeah, fine, fine, yeah. fine. What next? Well, okay, I was just going to say, and, and then it doesn't have to be a Blanc de Blanc as long as that Chardonnay's in there. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Anyway, next. Well, at the risk of further blowing the budget, sorry, mm. um, I'd say choose your vintage with care. But obviously, for that, you need to know which were the good vintages or years. Yeah, but that, that's not always obvious, is it? No, no, because sometimes a vintage, it, it, sometimes it's championed for having good weather or bumper yields or whatever. Mm. But as we've seen over the last few decades in English wine, sometimes it's the unsung or overlooked vintages that didn't give amazing results first up, but which come into their own over time, mm. which will end up being the best like um, well sherry mentioned 2010 as a good example i'd add 2013 as a really good option mm-hmm. um it's so the likes of 2014 15 and 16 are more variable but there are some brilliant wines from all of those vintages mm. ditto 2018 i mean it does of course slightly depend on location and also producer and because of the different you know different ways they manage their vineyards or handle their fruit and wines you know and and, and maybe how they actually stored their wines once they were made absolutely Mm. you knew what i was going to say didn't you (laughs) this brings me on to my final tip not very romantic or sexy storage is key yeah, you're right. Not very exciting, no. but it's very important. Mm. Um, it, it, it's just, you know, you can have the best, finest, most age-worthy English fizz, but if you age it in an unsuitable place, it won't work. Yeah, it reminds me of, of um, our episode on the 1982 Bordeaux tasting I did. You know, they were sensational wines, largely because they've been kept really well mm-hmm. in the same place. You know, and that what does that mean? It means a constant coolish temperature, you know, minimal vibrations or light, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and that goes first and foremost for the wine producers. So they need mm. to be maturing these wines in the right place. You know, champagne, of course, has the benefit of hundreds of kilometres of underground chalk caverns to do this. Um, and track record can speak to that. But not everyone has those facilities. Mm. And then maybe, you know, it's then down to the wholesaler or retailer, but also then we people who buy them. Yeah, and I suppose one option to mention here, if you don't have a good cellar or storage space at home, you know, is to store them in a third party warehouse. There's lots of wine merchants offer this service for a small fee. So so just ask. Yeah, and if you, um, you know, a small fee, for a while. if you're buying expensive wine I think mm. that's that's fair enough and yeah. it's it's so important in fact this was Sherry's second most important criterion for what makes for a good aged English fizz after balance the right storage conditions yeah and you don't necessarily know just looking at a bottle when you're buying it if it's been stored right do no, you so absolutely trusting not. the people you're buying it from trusting the producer to have done that well yeah. is actually really really important really important uh, yeah. now then I've also got my you know my version of the perfect storage conditions for finding this fizz right in front of us here and that's a, a big glass full of wine um, storage of course in the most temporary sense uh, can we start tasting that we can we can indeed uh, so so this isn't going to be long but I want wanted to feature a couple of very yeah. special aged English sparkling wines to showcase in liquid form 
what we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, for the rest, you can you can check out my decanter piece. We'll flag it up on our website show notes, won't mm. we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe that should be your final top tip. You know, follow the tips. <laughs> you know, these, these, it's important to say that these wines are not cheap. You know, so no. it can be really helpful to get tips from experts who you trust yeah. and have tasted the wines and yeah, can recommend yeah, them yeah. for aging or, or having been aged. So. I think we've had enough tips, though, for one episode. Um, <laughs> but I do agree. I do agree. Yeah. Anyway, let's kick off with the sensational, sticking mm. on the night in theme the sensational night in Blanc de Blanc 2007 in Magnum oh Magnum um, now we like this so much that we we bought um, quite uh, quite a few a few, a few. <laughs> I, think, I think we might actually be the biggest didn't Brad say we're the biggest private holders of this wine At um, one point, definitely. but it's mm. just glorious isn't it you know Every time you taste it, you think, thank goodness we did buy it because there's baked bread, creamy sort of patisserie flavours, hazelnuts, juicy, vivid acidity. It's so savoury as well, isn't it? And long. It's amazing. It's stunning. Mm. Um, If Mm. you want to be convinced about the age-worthiness of English fizz, Mm. uh, just try that wine. Mm. Um, The 2010 Night in Blanc de Blanc Magnum. It's pretty amazing too, isn't yeah. it? So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. coming forward in time a bit, uh, next up we've got the Breaky Bottom, Cuvée Gerard Hoffnung 2009. Uh, this has got lovely sort of brioche mm. aromas and flavours. It's made by the brilliant Peter and Christina Hall. Uh, they are one small but significant reason oh. why Britain is great. Oh, I would I just say that. They, they, should be on, they should be on the flag. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are wonderful people, wonderful. Mm. Anyway, I moving on, I'd give a shout out to Whiston Library Collection Blanc de Blanc 2010, another Blanc de Blanc 2010. Mm. Oh, mushrooms and digestive biscuits, um, but but again with really mm. vibrant acidity. Mm. It's delicious, mm. absolutely super. Now, coming back to Hampshire, the Exxon Park Cuvée M. Isaac, Malcolm Isaac, is, is their top wine, isn't it, I think? Mm. Um, and, and it showcases that vibrancy uh, that Kareem was talking about earlier. Yeah, uh, this is this 2011, 2011, it? so it's had, you know, good ageing time. This was Exxon's first vintage, I think, wasn't it, from mm. its oldest plot. And this wine is just a, a thing of beauty. It's truffly, it's smoky, but it's also very tangy and invigorating. It's, oh, Ooh. it's a brilliant... You know, example of how English wine can age really well. Mm, oh. mm, mm. So next up, a, a couple of wines from the excellent 2015 vintage. We've got the Sugru South Downs Cuvée Boz 2015, mm. and that's all apple rind and praline with a with a pristine, vibrant flavour profile that's very typical of mm, winemaker mm. Dermot Sugru. Yeah. Uh, and then we've also got Hattingley Valley Kings Cuvée 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is unashamedly oaky and hedonistic um <laughs> flavors of brioche and mm. lemon curd it's just oh one to sink into isn't oh, it's it so nice it's so nice uh, and then to finish off perhaps with a couple from 2016 uh also an age-worthy vintage in my book um the the chapel down kits coated curd de cuvee 2016 that's just sort of pure clotted cream apple pie you know oh magnificence and then then uh, a magnum of the grange estates the grange classic 2016 which is just really sort of expressive and elegant but also really decent value too mm. um so just a few there weren't there but mm. uh, but as i say there are more on our website yeah. check out the the show notes for more now, now one thing we did mention at the start which we haven't sort of touched on really maybe it's the elephant in the room i don't know um it's champagne Mm. Uh, you know how does English fizz compare in an aging sense to champagne you know we're used to aging champagne is it the same rules for English fizz is there any difference in the process that kind of thing 
Well, I, I think there are, of course, many similarities. Um, my top tips apply to champagne as much as English sparkling wine, for example. Mm. Um, but as English fizz evolves, I think there are subtle differences emerging. You know, mm. often there's a, there's a tension and vibrancy and urgency to English sparkling wine, which really does benefit from actually, sometimes it actually needs age to come into its own. And as global warming progresses and champagne warms up, so the wines are riper. You could even argue age benefits English fizz more than champagne in that sense. Could could you argue the kind of English fizz that would benefit from age is cheaper or better value than its equivalent quality in champagne i think you could i mean it's tricky isn't it you know there are there are many many wines all at Mm. different prices you know these english wines as well aren't cheap and because we're talking about some of the top wines in the country Mm. but i think if you compare those with the top wines of champagne they are significantly cheaper Mm. and so you could just about argue that, yes. Um, but I'd also like to give a word to Corinne Seely here, who, who, just to clarify, is originally from France and has made wine in Champagne, among other places, but is now based in Hampshire, making wine for Exton Park. And I asked her how the ageability of English fizz compares with that of Champagne. Well, Susie, I like to be honest with you. The weather has changed quite a lot of factors between Champagne and England. In the early days in Champagne, I I do remember tasting some lovely wines kept from my grandfather from um, the early 50s. And the wines at the time were certainly fresher than they are now, less less heavy. And and obviously, uh, I tasted some of the wines that had for some of them, 20 years on the cork, and they were still they were still vibrant. Today, champagne may not have that capacity of aging uh, so well. And here in England, we have that vibrancy, and uh, because of the level of acidity in our terroir, and above all here at Extend Park with the choke, so gives effectively the potential to edge better. I also discussed this with Clément Pierlot, who of course sees the comparison between his work at Pommery and Champagne and their Hampshire wines on a regular basis. Now he said the key to ageing is terroir. Mm. So the work is to identify the best vineyard plots and that has taken centuries in Champagne so Mm. it will take time Mm. in England but he did say and I quote that the next 10 years will be very interesting in terms of defining the terroir in England and thus I guess aging potential Mm. Um, but also he talked about how emotional it is for him standing on top of Pingleston Hill their vineyard near Allsford because he's convinced this terroir will give as he said something special in years to come he probably has to say that doesn't he kind of (laughs) it's it's a magnificent vineyard we'll go with it beautiful site very close to us isn't it it's beautiful Um, so maybe perhaps one to keep an eye on keep tasting and comparing Mm. Um, Mm. excuse for for lots more tasting Um, and to sum up I don't know a lot of your advice seems to be about finding wines with balance made by the sort of best most careful producers and then buying magnums of Chardonnay and storing them properly. Is that about the 
Long Something like that, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I think this is an intriguing aspect of English sparkling wine. We're only just starting to understand. Mm. But it's a good one to be aware of and perhaps get in there early mm. because it will give you huge drinking pleasure, being able to enjoy properly mature English fizz. Can we give a final word to Brad Greatrix of Nightimber, though? Well, I think I think we all have very high ambitions within English sparkling wine for what's possible with with English sparkling wine. But I think to to really become you know a serious like name ten best wine regions in the world or five best or whatever. If, you know, for for England to have a chance in there, we have to be producing age worthy bottles that are sitting in people's cellars that they pull out for special dinners and things like that, and not just the you know winning the blind tasting that shows up in the in the in the weekend newspaper, etc. But but collectors and real you know the 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 biggest wine enthusiasts in the world want to have English bottles in in their cellars, and we're we're not there yet. But I think it's an essential step mm-hmm. um, for England to be at, in that top echelon, like we think we deserve to be or want to be soon. Just a, a final question. Presumably, even the age-worthy wines won't last forever. So what would you say is a realistic time span for aging your English fizz? Good but difficult question. <laughs> um, I mean, Brad and Sherry, just to slightly um, divert this, I mean, they said they've consistently got this wrong, you know, underestimating <laughs> the ageing potential. So the Night in Blanc de Blanc 1992 is 30 years old, and that's still good. Mm. So... You could argue, I guess, the best wines today are, you know, um, superior to that. Mm -hmm. So maybe 30, 40, maybe even 50 years at a push. That sounds like a long time. Sounds to me like you're ducking there. I'm probably not going to be around then. Exactly. You're just just saying (laughs) enough time so you're not around so no one can can blame you. But anyway, I, I, I tend to agree with you. You know, I think so, at least on the one hand, there's no hurry. On the other, Tempus Fugit, you know, anyway without getting too meta about <laughs> things. I think we should just have a closing summary. Um, aging your fine English fizz is clearly the way forward, providing it's a style that's fit for purpose, which means a fundamentally well-balanced wine from a good vintage, 2010, 2013, 2015, 2018, ideally in magnum format and predominantly or wholly Chardonnay, not to mention stored impeccably. All you then need is patience, or maybe just a very big padlock or something like that. The perfect note to wrap things up on. (laughs) Now, do check out our our site for our recommendations, links and more. And if you can, please do leave us a positive rating and review. We need all the love we can get, don't we? We do. We do. Thanks to Corinne Seeley, Clément Pirlot, Sherry Spriggs and Brad Greatrix. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.